There was a really interesting comment on a blog, a Buddhist blog today from Evan Thompson. He shows up in Buddhist contexts periodically as a podcast guest and things like that, but uh, he's actually a major, major, major analytic philosopher of mind. Um, so he's definitely slumming by showing up on, on Buddhist blogs. The thing that I think he's best known for is that he is a co-author, one of three authors of a book. So you know, I'm going to get lots of details of this wrong because I'm just doing all this from memory and I don't like doing that. And whenever I write on the web, I'm really careful about going back to sources and checking my footnotes and stuff. And I'm doing this completely off the cuff. So this is kind of embarrassing and there will be things wrong. But I think it was early 90s. He was the author. He's one of three authors on a book whose name escapes me completely. The other two authors were Eleanor Roche and a guy named Varela. Varela had a funny first name and I can't remember what it was. Thompson, Roche, and Varela were the, the authors and it was... So they're all cognitivists, cognitive scientists of sorts, but they're coming out to some degree that they're they're rooted in the cybernetic tradition. Cybernetics, when when cognitivism got started in the 40s and 50s, cybernetics was a very big part of it, but they diverged. Uh, because most of the cognitivists became represent were, were representationalists. That was their whole thing. As far as they were concerned, cognitivism and representationalism were virtually interchangeable concepts, where the cyberneticists were anti-representationalist, or at least had a much gave a much lesser role to representation in explanations of mind. So Varela was. Uh, an old line cyberneticist, he had written with a guy called Umberto uh, Maturana, I think. I think in the 70s, he wrote, the two of them wrote a very influential, well, very well known. I don't think it was influential, I think because cybernetics in general was a dead end, unfortunately. They, they wrote a critique of cognitivism from a cybernetics point of view and said, you know, look, what's important is dynamics, not representation. And that idea is, I think, a very good and important one. Phil and I kind of had the same idea, but we were getting it in a very different way um, and took it in different directions. So that's Varela. Eleanor Roche was a cognitive psychologist at Berkeley. She did, she's no, I'm sure she did lots of things, but the thing she's known for is her work on categories. So the idea is that categories are fuzzy, which is true and important, and they have central members and they have peripheral or marginal members. So uh, a robin, the, the, one of the standard, her standard cases was that a robin is a central bird and a penguin is a marginal bird. And her experiment would say, if you ascribe some property to a central member of the category and then ask if it applies to a peripheral member, the answer is likely to be yes, but that doesn't go in the opposite direction. So if you say a cow, which is a sort of a 
prototypical, or maybe better, a, a dog is a sort of a prototypical mammal. A dog has an omentum. Um, do you think a bat has an omentum? People will say, uh, yeah. I don't know what an omentum is, but yeah, probably. If you say a bat has an omentum, do you think a dog has an omentum? People say, yeah, I don't know. bats are weird. God knows what they've got, but... So an omentum is this anatomical feature that kind of holds your guts in place, I think. Anyway, so that that put her on the map, and she was kind of a heroic founder figure for cognitive psychology. But, you know, she was looking at fuzzy categories, I think probably precisely because, you know, the kind of hardcore rationalist, representationalist line of cognitivism doesn't want to deal with fuzzy categories. That's its whole thing is to, to dualize and get away, get away from fuzziness. So sometime along the way, she kind of um, wanted to make a statement against the hardcore representationalism, and she and Varela, and then Thompson came in. He's a generation younger. So the three of them, Roche, Varela, Thompson, co-authored a book which um, was quite influential, again, like the Varela and Maturano one, it's influential in the sense that everybody read it and said, yeah, this is great, and then nothing happened, because basically the cybernetic lineage has no workable alternative proposal, and, you know, you can jump up and down as much as you like about representationalism is wrong, which it obviously is, but unless you can find a, a, a an alternative way forward, nothing happens. And so nothing really came with the book, although it was very widely read. So that book, whatever it was, was pointing out the problems of representation. That's my memory of it. Point of view. From which? From a cybernetic perspective. Well, I think roughly cybernetic. I mean, Varela was definitely a hardcore cyberneticist. My, I don't think either Roche or Thompson are exactly cybernetics, but Roche you know, started with fuzzy categories. And so also, I said there's a Buddhist lineage involved in here. So Roche was practicing in the Shambhala lineage. I, I believe she was a direct student of Trungpa Rinpoche. Evan Thompson is my great uncle in the Shambhala lineage. I, I don't actually know what the relationship between Roche and Thompson is. You know, he was very much the junior colleague at the time they co-wrote that book, just in terms of age. I have always kind of assumed that he was her direct student, but that may be completely wrong, given that he actually is an analytic philosopher and she was a, a, in the psychology department, although, you know, this sort of cognitive science did transcend those departmental boundaries. So I don't know whether she was also his Buddhist. So she became a teacher in the Shambhala lineage, something I'm... I'm kind of being vague on is whether she was directly the teacher of Nakhmazerme, who was my teacher in the Shambhala lineage, or whether she was the teacher of the... I think she was the teacher of the teacher of Zerme, so she's my great-grandmother. If Thompson was her direct Buddhist student, then yeah, he's he's my great-uncle or something. Anyway, um... <laughs> Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that he's a cognitivist Buddhist and she was a cognitivist Buddhist. And I think if you 
take Buddhist philosophy seriously, which he obviously does, although, you know, his comment was about the fact that he's not currently a Buddhist, and maybe never was, I don't know. If you take Buddhist ideas seriously, then that undermines cognitivism. And I think there's been a strong dialogue, actually, among intellectuals involved in Buddhism with cognitivism and with cybernetics, starting from the 1960s wave of, of Buddhism in the West. Going back to Gregory Bateson, who was one of the founders of cybernetics, and he, I don't think he would have described himself as a Buddhist, but he also certainly was very much influenced by Buddhism. So, uh, Fernando Flores is a very interesting guy. He was a hotshot economist who somehow in the Allende government in Chile, which is, I'm not remembering the history perfectly, but I think this is early 70s or late 60s, at the age of 30 or so, he managed to become the economics minister for Chile under Allende. Allende was a socialist, but a very forward-looking socialist, and Flores, as an idealistic but very smart socialist, wanted to do something which the Soviet communists had had the idea of and failed to do, which was, um, you know, the idea of Soviet communism was the state plans the economy and can do it rationally by writing out equations for, you know, how much steel are we going to need next year based on, you know, which cities are we building up and how many miles of railroad are we going to run? And you, you have all of these factors feeding into each other and you do a whole lot of calculation and they were doing this uh, mostly on paper, although they, they they did switch to computers, and that never worked. But I, uh, Flores thought, okay, we can do this better than the Soviets did. So we can have better computers, and uh, we can have better theories of control, which he wanted to get from cybernetics. He got permission from, from Allende to take control of the economy using computers and cybernetics, and he invited in a a guy named Stafford Beer, who was one of the original British cyberneticists from the 40s, 50s. The British cyberneticists were all really eccentric. I guess the American cyberneticists were all really eccentric too, but they were eccentric in an American way where the British cyberneticists were eccentric in a British way, so they're really different. So Stafford Beer is this eccentric English guy who comes in to Chile and he and Flores build this absolutely state-of-the-art amazing command and control center using masses of computers and incredible technology and they have this sort of uh it, it looks like the deck of the USS Enterprise on Star Trek. They got this kind of ultra-modernist kind of bionic furniture and, and it's, it's really great you see photographs of it. And they they were working on this for a couple of years, and then the CIA deposed Allende, and that was the end of that. So it would be fascinating to know how this would have played out if it had been allowed to. Probably would have been some kind of interesting disaster, but anyway, we don't know. And Flores obviously got the hell out as fast as he could because the country got taken over by right-wing thugs, and he was probably not going to do very well there. So he came to America, and he kept popping up in really interesting places. He worked with Maturana. He may also have worked with Varela. 
and Matrana and Varela were doing this anti-cognitivist cybernetics work. The second place he shows up is that he worked with Terry Winograd, who was, he was not a founder of AI, but I think he did probably the most important work in AI maybe ever in completely the straight ahead representationalist cognitive framework. But then by the mid 80s had realized that that couldn't work and was, Winograd was talking with Dreyfus about Heidegger and Heidegger's anti-representationalism, Dreyfus's anti-representationalism, which had a lot of the same insights as the cybernetic critique, although it came out of a completely different intellectual tradition and had somewhat different implications. So I think Winograd, I think, was first working with Dreyfus, but then he met up with Flores, who had the cybernetic version of the anti-representationalist critique. So the two of them co-authored this book, Understanding Computers and Cognition, which is possibly the most accessible explanation of why 1980s style, 70s, 80s style AI failed, and also of what I call meta-rationality. It's a bit too concise. I'm not sure that it's actually understandable unless you have a lot of this background, but it's a, it's a very clear book. So another place that Flores shows up is Werner Erhard, who did originally did Erhard Seminar Trainings, EST, which was this somewhat culty personal growth system from the 1970s, got into reading Heidegger and was talking to a lot of academics, and he met up with Flores, and Erhard and Flores co-created the sort of V2, version 2 of Est, which was called the Forum. Is, Erhard, that, the, is that the landmark for Yes, that's right. right. Erhard also was doing Zen, so there's a Buddhist connection there. You know, a lot, a lot of this rant is basically about the fact that there's not very many intellectually interesting people in the world, and they all talk to each other. They're actually in very different fields working out the same set of ideas in different contexts, but any intellectual era has a fairly lim limited number of major significant new ideas that everybody's actually working on. And if you're going to be part of the zeitgeist, you need to figure out, okay, what are the ideas that are actually significant in this era and why all of these things are responding to, well, I'm, people get lucky and don't understand intellectual history maybe, but I think understanding intellectual history is really important, which is, I guess, the main point of this round. So I haven't actually, this is sort of embarrassing, Evan Thompson is a major living figure who, for all I know, might listen to this. I haven't actually read his stuff. I don't know exactly where he's coming from. He's in the cognitivist tradition, as of course Roche was, but I think he's much more open-minded, much less of a straight-ahead rationalist than that tradition generally is. And if you take Buddhism seriously, which he does, then... I think meditation itself undermines the possibility of that kind of hard-edged dualistic rationalism because you just see it, things don't work that way. That, that just is so not how reality is. And I don't exactly understand how that works. I mean, that would be interesting to, not necessarily at a mechanistic level, but at a phenomenological level to understand. I think it's a very consistent thing that 
doing Buddhist meditation does undermine the, the dualism of rationalism. Well, I think it does if it's expansive, but mm-hmm. one of the points that he was making in that comment was that the you bring the conceptual framework to the experience and that right. forms the experience, which is what we've been talking about in relation to shamatha vipassana right. and how that is different from expansive meditation. Yes. So maybe it, maybe shamatha actually does reinforce the dualism in a way that the kind of meditation history that we've got doesn't. Right, and he's also... I believe he has background in the Shambhala system. Don't actually know that. He, I think, footnoted Robert Scharf, whose articles on meditation were very influential on me in understanding the history and present of Buddhism and my explanation of um, the history of Theravadan meditation drew very heavily on Scharf's work. Scharf is also at Berkeley, it's worth mentioning. And I think one of Scharf's main points is that the conceptual framework that you bring to meditation is is going to form your experiences to a significant degree. So if you come out of a non-dual tradition, which you and I do, then maybe you're going to have non-dual experiences in meditation, where if you come out of a dualist tradition which the early modern Theravadan you know they're coming out of Pali Abhidharma which is which is a very dualistic tradition of you know this is good and that's bad and everything is one way or another way and we can put everything into categories so the meditation experience is going to be influenced by that but also very likely the methods that they develop are going to be ones that tend to produce that kind of categorical dualism which, coming back to the starting point, Roche spent her career undermining. Is early 20th century and 19th century Buddhism, is it connected to the history of categories in cognitivist science then? No, it is predates cognitive science. I mean, it was apparently significantly influenced by the uh, philosophy of mind and maybe psychology of the West in the late 19th century and early 20th century, but that predates cognitivism as we now know it. I mean, it it is coming out of the Western philosophical tradition, which is very big on putting things into categories in the same way that Abhidharma was. Probably both of those, I mean, the Western tradition obviously comes out of Greek philosophy, which was big in putting things into categories. I tend to believe that early Buddhist philosophy was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, but the history on that is certainly shaky, if not outright crackpot. 